Hello, welcome to Seeing Them Given, the show about the laws of the game and the referees who enforce them. This week, policing the technical area and managers and coaches getting away with too much at the moment. And how much better are professional referees at getting key decisions right? I'm Mike McCarthy, broadcaster and football journalist. They're with me as always, former FIFA referee and ex-head of the PGMOL, Keith Hackett. Uh, Keith, I should have mentioned this before we uh, recorded. I almost had my first uh, refereeing experience at the weekend. Wow. Uh, there was a call that went out from our uh, my, my lads, uh, my lads team saying we might need a ref for the first half. I did offer my services. Thankfully, a proper official was available in the end, and I didn't have to uh, grab a whistle and walk around in my walking boots uh, to try and um, get the game yeah. going. So uh, a, a, a huge escape for all involved. Yeah, and and obviously you still maintain good relationship with 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 your children because sometimes <laughs> when I got caught, uh, the looks in the back of the car and uh, <laughs> the occasional "What did you do that for?" was uh, was the outcome. So was never a penalty. I learned uh, one of the experiences, Mike, is to push the kids forward and make certain they're in and around the field and arrive at the appropriate time. And you sit in the car and wait for the game to start. Then you go and watch. Yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Um, let's get into uh, the weekend then. Uh, can we start on on Sunday, actually? And an interesting talking point coming out of uh, Watford's 3-2 defeat against Arsenal. The third Arsenal goal um, saw Mikel Arteta. I, I don't think we quite call this an assist because there's several passes after this before uh, the goal scored by Martinelli. <laughs> but he comes out of his technical area helps a throwing get taken quickly by an Arsenal player um, and Arsenal score their third goal. This is something that Mikel has admitted afterwards uh, that he got a telling off from the fourth official for doing, uh, but nevertheless, uh, the goal stood. There was no disciplinary action. What did you what did you make of the whole incident, Keith? Well, I think that, look, I, I think that within the laws of the game, there's, there's a degree of stretch and we don't always want to be like over, uh, if you like, involved. I think we've got to a stage now where <clears throat> over recent years, a number of managers, and Arteta's not alone, that drift well outside the technical area. Uh, and we've allowed it to drift uh, as match officials. You know, we see Jurgen Klopp occasionally run down towards a cop in, in a passionate sort of enjoyment of a goal being scored. We used to see Mourinho go down and berate the assistant on occasions. So it's not new. Within the laws, this is an act of unspoken behaviour. The, the, the reason we paint lines, the reason that FIFA uh, dictate that the technical area is at maximum one metre from the touchline and one metre either side of the bench is for the very reason to say, look, we expect you to stay within it as a controlling mechanism. Hmm. And what we've seen is the odd foot over, then we've seen it expand. So it's gone a bit loose to the extreme that I think on, on this particular game, there's no doubts in my mind that Arteta uh, played a major part in that goal because... He collected it quickly. He was yards outside his areas. You know, on social media, I made the comment that, hey, this is an act of unsporting behaviour. And strictly speaking in law, Arteta should be given a yellow card for that act. 
and the goal disallowed. But of course, you then get the the response. He's broken the law, and that's what referees and match officials are supposed to apply. Um, but within the professional game, there's a ba- there's a balance, and I think that it's a you know the the clock swung the wrong way a little bit. And we've got to get back to what the fourth official's got to do, first of all. He's got a very clear task. He's got, you know, the law now allows him to come in and help the referee, particularly on violent acts of violence and misconduct, so he can he can get involved in that. The laws have also changed now where the manager and the coaching staff and the occupants of the technical area can be shown a yellow card or a red card. So that, again, is another enforcement of law that's come in in order to try to get, if you like, laws are only produced on the basis of trying to control things. Yeah, and and the role of the fourth official is one that we haven't really spoken about on this show very much uh, Mm. since we started, Keith. And um, from memory, I can't remember when the fourth official became a fixed part of, of the match day officiating crew, if you like. Um, for me, it almost feels like I can't remember the time when they weren't there. But presumably, that was there was a time when that happened and the, the switch was made. Um, and and what were their original sort of requirements, and have they evolved over time? Don't ask me the date when uh, they, they got involved. <laughs> the, the one thing I can tell you is yellow cards were sort of nineteen seventy, but some years later, before they were introduced into the English game. And the guy who invented that was Ken Aston, a colleague, a refereeing colleague in England who I knew quite well. Um, no, I think that in the technical area, it has evolved. When it was literally, when we first saw it introduced in the Football League, there was strict enforcement. It literally said, first of all, the manager, one man, coach, can actually stand, go to the forward front of the front of the technical area, pass on his instructions and then had to retire and sit down. And then we had two and we said, well just a minute, only one's allowed to stand. So it has evolved. Mm. Uh, the role of the fourth official has evolved as well because you know all it, it's more than just the exchange of team sheets. you know initially we had the board. It was under our control. We had to learn how to use it. We were the one that actually raised the board. Uh, and now we see staff of, the, of each club uh, raising the board to indicate substitutions in time, all, all helping the game from a communication point of view. Whereas early in my career, I can tell you, the manager used to come to the touchline and say, hey, off, <laughs> and show. <laughs> And uh, I can recall one occasion very briefly. I was refereeing uh, Wolves versus, versus Queen's Park Rangers in an FA Cup game. And um, Tommy Doherty was the manager of QPR. He came to the touchline indicating that he wanted stand bowls. And we're about 20, 30 minutes into the game to, to be substituted. And I and Stan Bowles is not, he's completely ignoring him. I go up and say to Stan Bowles, look, Stan, uh, the boss is substituting you. Well, I'm not going, was his, his response. <laughs> uh, I looked across the field and there was Tony Curry. And I said to Tony Curry, Tony, he's got to go off. Give us a hand. Nothing to do with me, mate. And he was off. 
until eventually we got this, what now is becoming more than just a delay. It was expanding to something that was slightly embarrassing. And I went up to Stan Bowles, who had no intention of going off, and said to him, Stan, are you paid the same amount for playing for 20 minutes or are you paid more if you paid a full 90? And he just sprinted off. I'd obviously given him, <laughs> him an answer. He gave me one, and obviously that he was paid the same amount. Um, the fourth official, what, what are his duties? Obviously to manage the substitutions. To, you know, there is a, a restricted number of occupants of the technical area. And he's got to manage that. In Europe, you'll find that with the larger number at times, there are two seats accommodated outside the technical area to the left and right. So he's got that. Uh, he's got to make a note of substitutions and write down and cautions. And I think he's giving some assistance to the referee now on, on uh, timing. What managers think is that is a connection to the referee for them to explain and get over their concerns about how that referee's performing in the football match. Mm. And the expectation that the referee is going to give an answer to everything that the referee's doing out in the middle, the fourth official. That's not his job, but he does it because to try and create a link of communication. It seems like there's a lot of diplomacy and politics involved in the job, you know, and, and I guess... If you start enforcing this this rule that you know only so many people are supposed to be in the technical area at a time, if you start getting really needly about that, all of a sudden, a little bit later in the game, you might lo have lost credibility to calm down a much more significant and arguably more pertinent situation in the game. It seems like a lot of give and take and a lot of people management in that role. I think there is, but I think there's also a task where you say, right, okay, uh, it, I think it. I think the the sort of incident involving Arteta shows a weakness in the system uh, because an unfair advantage has been gained. Uh, Roy Hodgson was fairly like, well, I, if I could have done the same, I would have done the same. Um, what do you want? Do you want men in the game, or do you want actually players and managers to behave in a responsible manner? And what referees are paid for? And remember that fourth official is invariably a referee. It's paid to manage the laws and, and to apply the laws and manage the game. So it's a, it is about balance. And, um, you know, people thought, I, you're being a bit pedantic. I'm a million miles away from being a pedantic official. But over the years, we've seen the drift. And we've seen, the, you know, we've seen the, the technical area become the sometimes the focus of ent entertainment when it should be on the pitch. It's the technical area that's giving us the imbalance but what we're on the subject of technical things something from uh, newcastle brighton uh, that you pointed out over the weekend that uh, the goalkeeper i'm not sure which one it was actually was allowed to hang a towel on the the side netting and i didn't realize this can be an issue when it comes to goal line technology keith i think it can be an issue in refereeing generally remember that it's where that towel is positioned that can influence because let's say the guy inadvertently ties the towel and it's it's very close to the uh, goalpost, then that's obstructing the view of the assistant referee who doesn't have a goal line technology. He's not in that, that sphere of seeing whether the ball's crossed the line or not. I think it's so important that we have 
the vision of a game of football not impaired by someone hanging a towel. So it's a dead simple thing. Before the kickoff, you actually get it resolved. You don't resolve it during the course of the match. But if it does happen, you can resolve it at a corner kick. So for me, I think this is one that you've just referees have just got to be aware of. It, it slipped. Now, in the in the case of <clears throat> goal line technology, there's seven cameras around each goal. And you want clear images, clear image of the ball, ideally, and for the computer systems to work, the software package. Uh, and therefore, the last thing you want is a towel on, go, on, a, goal, on a goal net. It, you know, the goal net is the goal net for a purpose. It's not there as a washing machine or a washing line to hang uh, <laughs> your clothes on. Uh, one technical thing to keep an eye on then. But in fairness, this weekend, Keith, it's been a, a fairly solid weekend for, for the Premier League and, and refereeing decisions. Yes, I think I think that it's uh, long overdue where we can actually praise some match officials. I thought in the Liverpool game, John Moss, who you know I've criticised very heavily at times, um, Anfield is a smaller pitch size. I think that helps. But nonetheless, um, Liverpool-West Ham is, was always going to be a tough game. And I think he helped it really, really well. Um, kept the game flowing. Uh, played some good advantages. Uh, I was disappointed because I thought he'd issued a double uh, caution. There was a challenge near the halfway line that was worthy of a yellow card. Um, and uh, I think that was Duffy. And... Uh, he allowed advantage to be played. He, the, the player was fouled again on the edge of the box. This time, Zuma was cautioned. So I think he had every right to go back and caution the other player. I thought that's what he'd done. But in fact, it looks as though he'd had a quiet word. Uh, so, yeah, I think he had a good game. I think Michael Oliver in the Manchester derby, typical of Oliver, he's, you know, him and, him and Taylor are our number one and two. I think this weekend he demonstrated it. He's, you know... When he needs that sprint, Oliver's got it in in heaps full. He, he he can get into great positions. He does. I watched Taylor penetrate into the penalty area. So yeah, a, a talking point in that Manchester derby was, um, you know, Maguire for me. Mm. Uh, I think he was lucky uh, not to have been penalised for his tangle with Foden. Uh, I, I think I would have taken the courage, courageous view of giving a penalty kick and upsetting everybody. Uh, Michael Oliver saw it the other way and gave the free kick to Manchester United. Uh, that could have gone either way, in fairness. But then later in that game, Maguire came in with a challenge which received a yellow card. He, Michael Oliver judged it reckless. It was a little bit more than that. He probably just short of a red, but it it was it was pretty naughty. Um, so Maguire is someone I think just needs to calm down and start to play football and not use his arms and hands and his uh, frustration uh, taking out of another player. Yeah, he's certainly a defender with a lot of pressure on him at the moment and not helped a great deal by his teammates either. Um, something that came up from the uh, Continental Cup final, Chelsea uh, women against Manchester City women at the weekend, mm-hmm. Um, there was a handball shout for for, for Man City. Uh, it looked pretty clear, but you can make a case that perhaps the referee in this instance was uh, unsighted. Um, led to us getting a few tweets, and and this is something that comes up whenever we see perhaps controversial incidents in the in the women's game. Keith, is uh, why 
are there not professional referees in the women's game? Or should there be? And before we get into that issue entirely, what we do have at the moment is a group of professional referees that look after Premier League games, and sometimes you see them in the EFL as well. Um, but what do we see in terms of decision-making of professional referees versus uh, referees who are uh, part-time, for want of a better expression? Do we see decision-making that is better, or do we see other benefits of professionalism I wanted to get to the, the root of, of why this is considered to be better and why reflexively we call for it in other parts of the game when we see decisions that perhaps could have been made different. I think to some degree it's a false argument, in particular for the women's championship um, in relation to refereeing. I think what we've got to understand is that only in the Premier League and the championship do we see professional referees, SG1, are the Premier League, SG2 are the, are the championship. They're paid a salary, that, you know, um, and it's their number one employment. What does that give? A referee's process, as I've mentioned before, is to see, recognise, think and act. Seeing is so important in refereeing. What the professional game brings, uh, professional refereeing, is uh, the ability for a lifestyle change. Uh, that is improving fitness levels, nutrition, diet, uh, sports psychology, all the things that we introduced when the PGMOL was introduced. And I've got to tell you, Mike, that budget was three million when, when that, that was introduced. When I became PGMOL boss and eventually retired from that position, the budget at that point was five million. The budget now is 22 million. So, so, so what, has the, what, has, what has football got for that money? Well, I think that's a good question. I think if you ask me, a lot less than we ex anticipated or expected when we set up the PGMOL. But that's down to the current crop and the leadership. You know, uh, we, we were on a, I think, on a path of improving performances. I, I've been critical with justification, I believe, supported by many other stakeholders in the game about the falling standards of officiating. I don't think they realise how fortunate they are to become professional referees. We've also got to understand, and perhaps those that are making the commentary about the women's game, is to understand that the Football League started in 1888 and has never had professional referees, apart from those that SG1 SG2 in the championship would go down and referee. So there's a professional competition that existed without, without professional refereeing. What is the aid to professional refereeing is, is about recovery, availability. Mike, when I was a referee on the Football League and the Premier League and the international panel, um, I was also a director of a business, which was very demanding. I had mm -hmm. sales figures to achieve. I had salesmen to manage, distribution network to manage, and a, a, a great deal of my time would be spent managing the business and then escaping and getting time off to do to the work. I had to turn down the opportunity to referee the European Cup final because I couldn't get time off work. And people said, well, you could have done. Yeah, I could, and lost another job. I lost two jobs because of refereeing. I sacrificed those jobs for refereeing. I once 
uh, was appointed to a board job in Sheffield as a, a kitchen manufacturer. And early into that, I was appointed to referee a game in Germany and um, had to come back for a board meeting. And the only way I could achieve that was to actually charter my own aircraft. So oh, right. I had to charter an aircraft, pay £2,000 of my own pocket money and the family's uh, money to actually get that aircraft to bring me back to Sheffield in time for a board meeting. Had I not done that, I would have been fired. So I'm, I'm quite clear that, and why I was a major supporter of professional referees. And what you've got now is, and I've no, I, I have great pleasure in saying that referees now earn more than the prime minister, because that's how footballers reflects. Football can afford that now to have professional refereeing, but not throughout the football league. What does it bring? I think that you know when we look at when we look at the likes of Taylor and Oliver, we see fully what it brings. It brings referees that are dedicated, mobile, good decision makers come out the crop. We've got a number of other referees. We've got, you know, people like Darren England, who's who's come on to the Premier League this year and refereeing really well. Andy Madley, who's changed from being a football league to be being a Premier League referee. So we do see some uh, opportunities for referees to advance. When uh, When we get to the women's game, I think what needs to happen is we need to have a nucleus of referees. First of all, we have to say that uh, we're behind the curveball in terms of women referees generally across this country. We're, we're a million miles behind other parts of Europe and America. And I can remember going in, running a soccer camp in, in Canada, uh, in the early 80s and coming across really women referees for the first time and, and being absolutely gobsmacked how good they were. So I've had, I've had no problems with, with the likes of Wendy Toms and others coming through. Uh, and we've got one or two now that, are, you know, I mean, making good strides, but we, have, we haven't got enough. So I think what I am seeing is a, a very <clears throat> positive move by the FA and the PGMOL is to bring in B.B. Stonehouse, who is a, was a German Bundesliga international referee, top, top quality referee. She's now married to Harry Howard Webb as a, as a, a coincidence. But she's got involved with the training and development of refereeing and already I'm hearing very positive words about her work. So what I think needs to happen is the women's game at the championship level needs to have a panel of referees that are all refereeing their games on a regular basis and they go into training uh, and go through all the processes of improving their performance, you know, and that is they are assessed every game they have very clear training programs given by a sports scientist. They wear polar heart monitors, downloaded information, all aimed at improving the physical, the physicality of referees, their recovery, and their performances. 
is that ultimately the, the, the main thing then that professionalism can do? It's about physical fitness. It's about being able to see and then act as, as, as a phrase that you use very often. Um, but I guess, well, the other thing about it is, I mean, often you talk about referees having, you know, meetings after the weekend, reviewing decisions and things like that and, and trying to get a level of consistency within the professional refereeing community about what is seen as a yellow card or a red card or, you know, any kinds of different things that you want to focus on. Does professionalism allow a greater level of consistency or is that something that is not achievable even if you go to those lengths and those lengths? No, I, th I think it does. I think that what you do is you, you have a mix of people. They come together on a regular basis. Uh, they meet, they show video clips, they discuss them. And, and it's a learning uh, space. This is, a, this is about education and learning. And, and one of the great things is that, you know, I think sadly with COVID, uh, you know, we've seen all those problems, but out of it, we're now more efficient dealing with social media and, and the like of Teams or whatever system that you're operating, Zoom or whatever. And therefore, I think that this, is, this has to be made much more use of in referee education. You know, I mean, uh, I've watched Simon Hall, a colleague that we've had on this show, who's very efficient as an educator, also very efficient as an IT guy. And therefore, this is the old basis of, of the Sheffield Referee Academy is that they can do their training online. And therefore, online training is where you can achieve what you achieve in bringing people together in a, sing a single point. So, yeah. I think it's about dedicating time and the, the game, the competition as a whole, pay for that referee's time in order to train and develop as an individual. But with it, there has to be accountability. You know, last week we saw Chris Cavana, we talked about the handball incident, spokesman of the Premier League coming out and defending that in that Everton game that it wasn't handball. It cost Everton points. Uh, later on, they did confirm that it was handball and they agreed, but it took two days to get there. Um, what happens to the referee? That referee needed to be taken off the games, given appropriate operational advice and time to reflect. And what happened instead is he was refereeing at Burnley on the Tuesday after the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, first of all, the, the old point was that he shouldn't have been appointed to that game in the first place as a VAR. You know, he's a, he's a competent referee. Mm -hmm. He's done a game in, in Europe on the Thursday night and he comes back and he's then got to referee um, or a VAR a game on Saturday. It's too close. We're almost coming full circle then. Is there almost an attitude now that... Well, we've got these professional referees, so they should be able to referee Thursday night in Hungary and then come back and do a VAR shift on a Saturday evening and then go and be fourth official on a Sunday and then referee on a Tuesday somewhere else in the Premier League. Is there a, a, a sense that uh, what is possible is actually too much of an ask? Uh, for You know, you're still dealing with human beings. They're not robots. Well, I mean, every human being has a different personality and they're not robots and they do go in refereeing, just like any other sportsman uh, or sports person, they, it, they, it ebbs and flows. And what you've got to do is when, it, when it's down in the doldrums, you've got to try and encourage, persuade, 
improve the performance of that individual. That's what professionalism is, getting the best out of everyone. Um, but you're not going to get that if you're almost sort of saying, well, forget that error, go on to the next one, make another error there. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't help performance. And, you know, Mike, we got some referees at the top having twice as many games in the Premier League than at the bottom. So, look, I think we, when we talk about professionalism and we talk about referees on the Football League, they're professional in their attitude. Might not look it, but they are. They, they actually have the conviction of, in their own time, doing the appropriate training and, and applying it. And I see some football league referees uh, performing better than some of the Premier League referees. You know, I mean, I watched a game last weekend in the freezing wet weather and a guy holding his flag. And I asked him after the match what his ambition was and he's to be the football league referee. And you suddenly go, I remember that. I remember that career path mm. of 12 years of refereeing at grassroots level. I, we, I think the women's game is in danger of getting ahead of itself. So, it I mean, there, there are no shortcuts here, are there, Keith, essentially? Well, well, there are no shortcuts, but also there's a tiered structure within England in terms of football. And where, where, does, where does the women's competitions fit in that tier? Because in the men's game, that tier applies and you get a referee of that level of experience. So if, you, if you're an under nines, under eights, you're likely to get either a referee who's, who's got years and years of experience in doing it for fun, or you're likely to get someone that's just passed the test. Well, you might even get me if you're unlucky. You might get <laughs> you. And that, they would be very, very unlucky, as they would if you got me as well, Mike, <laughs> in that sense. But, yeah, I think that, um, look, everybody wants the optimum performance out of any referee. And the game as such has got to achieve that. But at this moment in time, we've also got to recognise that we are way, way short of the required numbers of referees at grassroots level. This increasing risk of abuse and, and physical assaults is still there. It's not gone away. And referees who are falling out of love with the game because they're saying, I'm not putting up with that at the weekend. I want to enjoy it. Referees are in this game, just like those players, to enjoy it. As we, what professional refereeing has, has brought, introduced, certainly in my period of office, was a cadre of world-class referees. We had 10 referees out of the 16, 18 that could have refereed a game anywhere in the world. At this moment in time, we're lucky to get a handful, in my opinion. So I think there are some people who have automatically become professional referees and don't really understand, at the end of the day, what we expect of them. Fascinating as always, Keith. I'd love your thoughts on this. Hello at seenthemgiven.co.uk is where you can get in touch with us on the email. 
as always thank you for listening thank you for being part of the show uh, if you like what you hear and you're on itunes uh, leave a, a rating or a review uh, indeed you can do that wherever you get your podcast it does help other people discover the show uh, for now though thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time cheers mike